It's estimated that 150,000 horses each year in the United States are unwanted. What do we do with these horses? This week, we've got an equine expert to talk about horses in transition and some of the unique challenges that equine practitioners are facing around the world. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are going to take a trip to the equine side of the practice field. And this week, we are going to talk about horses in transition. And that's a term that our guest has sort of come up with to describe horses that are unwanted for a wide variety of reasons. And this is a bigger problem than maybe we're aware of as veterinary colleagues. And I want to have somebody to talk about those special needs. How do we actually work with horses that need our help, that need rescuing? How do we get them to their next stop in life? Uh, and what can we do to recognize their needs? And more importantly, we're also going to talk about some of the emotional challenges that equine practitioners, and I would argue large animal practitioners in general, have been facing during the COVID time. So I'm super excited to introduce you to our guest this week. But before we get into all of that, as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Moss. And Becky, today's guest is Dr. Stacy Boswell. And Stacy is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, so she's one of those surgeon types. Uh, she went to Virginia, Maryland for a vet school. Then she went right back to our backyard, Becky. She went and did her uh, large animal internship and uh, training here at North Carolina State University. Then she went. Back. <laughs> Go Wolfpack, that's right. Then she went all the way up to Cornell. And sadly, Becky, she wound up at University of Tennessee, which we'll have to talk to her about what happened there. But, you know, coming from the University of Georgia, we just, we're, you know, we appreciate those guys up there in Orange. But anyway, she's now in clinical private practice in Montana. And her passion is to make horses' lives better through both physical and mental well-being. Dr. Stacey Boswell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super looking forward to our conversation. Oh, well, we are too. Well, first of all, I'll tell the viewfinders, where are you? So I'm in southwest Montana. Um, it's fairly cold here this morning, but the sunrise is beautiful. Yeah, there's always that caveat, <laughs> right, Becky? It's like, it's not hot. It's a dry heat, right? Or, or it's, <laughs> it's not that cold. There's a beautiful sunrise. How cold is it? Um, I think it was 17 last what? night. What? No way. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, you know what, Becky, I was complaining this morning that we were in the fifties. Okay. Yeah, I was I, legit. Mm -mm. 17 is unreal. And not only is it 17, but like you're a large animal that you're working outside in that cold. I don't, uh, respect. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Much respect. Well, well Stacy, again, you've taken your career is is really an interesting one, but maybe take us back to the beginning. Like what prompted you to join up and become a veterinary professional in the first place? That's a really good question. When I was a little kid, I always said I wanted to be a vet, and then through high school and college, I got really interested in genetics, so I did some laboratory work and got really interested in that for a while. And then after I got married, I moved to the Northern Virginia area, and I was very fortunate to work in uh, two practices, one small animal and one equine, and both of those practices really pushed me to get more education. And man, every step I took, I just lapped up more and kept going. So I, it just, like, it just snowballed. Um, and it's it's the right place to be, obviously, for me, because I'm super passionate about 
horses. I love talking about them um, to anybody and everybody that will listen. Um, and I really, over the last few years, have gotten very interested in um, how we interact with our horses and how it's not just their physical well-being that we need to look after, but also their mental well-being. Wow. So you didn't grow up like in a horsey family, you know, doing shows and working in stables and all that? No, I got a horse when I was a sophomore or junior in high school. Um, and I, I grew up in New Mexico and where I was living, there was actually a vesicular stomatitis outbreak mm. that year. So there were no shows. And right. then when I did my undergraduate at Texas A&M, I did take a horse with me and I got I got pretty horsey. But again, I was super <laughs> interested in the genetics. Um aspect of things. So I spent a lot of time doing that as well. Becky, there's a lot to unpack there, right? She was growing up in New Mexico, had a horse, then took a horse with her to Texas. Okay. You're pretty much qualified as a horsey person in my book. I think it counts. (laughs) (laughs) Once I drank from the Kool-Aid, I just kept drinking. (laughs) Okay. So then you wind up going to Virginia, Maryland vet school. Okay. And uh, tell us what happens in vet school. Do you just amp up your love of, of horses? Uh, do you have questions? Did you ever want to come to the small animal side or go to food animal or anything like that? <laughs> no. And, you know, um, I, I'm i really horsey, really horsey. But I am in a mixed animal practice here in Montana. And that actually opened up a ton of doors as far as things for me, as far as things uh, that I feel like I can do to spread the word about kind of how to do our jobs better or ways that we can help horses um, because this practice is a fear-free certified practice. Um, and so when fear-free started looking at the equine modules, I got, I, I really lucked into talking to Marty Becker and getting, getting on the team to write those modules. And, and if I wasn't in a mixed animal practice, I would not have had that exposure to fear-free. Um, and, and that's been a real game changer for me. Okay. I do want to talk about that later, but I still want to stay in your academic track because I mean, there are a lot of veterinarians that do small animal, large animal, food animal that don't go on and become a specialist. You took the more arduous track of becoming a surgeon. So tell us how did that happen? Because you've mentioned genetics so far. I haven't heard anything about surgery and suddenly you're a surgeon. I know surgery is so fun. Okay, got it. But how did when did that transition? How did that happen? I mean, surgery is so fun. It just it just happened through vet school. I had this super nice mentor, Linda Dahlgren, and when I was a second and third year student, she let me come into the teaching hospital in the middle of the night for colics. And and once I, I mean, I was just hooked. And so I just kept going and I got really lucky to have great mentors and people that wrote me nice letters, even though I'm not perfect. And, you know, I just kept going. And, and honestly, like it, it is so nice to be able to like have some skills where I can really do some stuff if it comes down to it. I appreciate, um, you know, when a client doesn't have all of the financial resources, but they still let us try, you know, a few things. Um, or, or, you know, I'm in Montana, so things get a little Western once in a while. Um, I, I have a surgical facility here that I'm in, and so I can do colics and all of the big things. But I also, you know, I have clients that are pretty game and pretty handy to do some stuff outside. And so we can, we can really help horses on a lot of levels. Um, because I think a lot of my clients wouldn't be able to travel very far um, to get that next level in care. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm 
able to have those skills to be able to provide that for them. Yeah, that's that sounds amazing. So after you complete your residency and you pass your boards, did you go straight to Montana or were there any stops in between? No, I practiced. So my family's from New Mexico and I practiced in a mixed animal practice in New Mexico for a couple of years. Um, and that we just, my husband had a job up here in Montana that he was working on and he travels for work, but we just ended up transitioning up here and it was, it's really the right place for us to be. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So um, again, Viewfinder says you've heard so many guests over the years, you know, she has quite a complex story that led her here. You know, I, I, she was definitely one of those horsey people from the start, I can tell already, even though you minimized it, because uh, it is really, you know, it's it's rare, Stacy, to find, you know, equine practitioners who kind of didn't grow up. It wasn't baked into them, right? You know, you know there, there are a lot of small animal people that, like, got to college and they're senior to go, oh, I'll become a vet. And they did, and they, they're great. But, you know, equine is kind of a special thing. It is, but it's so fun. <laughs> well, of course it's fun. It's just how you get there is what I'm talking about. Okay, so <laughs> recently you wrote a book that I found very interesting because you, you had a phrase that you kind of latched onto about horses in transition. And at the intro, I talked about 150,000 horses are estimated to be un unwanted in the United States every year. So tell us a little bit about this book, The Ultimate Guide for Horses in Need. Talk about this because this is fascinating. Um, yes. Yeah, so through my residency, as we were talking about my academic track, I was at the University of Tennessee and um, my internship and residency training, you know, in the late 2000s um, and early, you know, 2010, 2011, um, the economics in the U.S., we were in a slump. And so there were a ton of horses that came into the teaching hospital. Um, I remember one case, there was a farm with over 50 horses and we confiscate, like we worked with the sheriff's department and like 45 of them were confiscated because they were a body condition score of one or two. And some of those horses, I mean, there was, th this case really tore everybody's heart up. There was a, a horse and young, like four or five years old, um, body condition score one, everything we, all the resources we wanted at the university could not save this horse. Wow. And so that that really like that inspired me to to look further so we started seeing these repeat sort of issues right and and i've seen these in north carolina and new york and tennessee and new mexico and montana like it's everywhere um where somebody some spouse dies and the you know the kids inherit the horses and they don't know what to do or you know somebody as they age up um they're not able to take care of their horses anymore and it it really is um there are some mental health things on the human side that lead to horses being being neglected um but there's also just a plethora of horses especially through that period of time where there's more horses than there were homes and at the same time we shut down some of the exit strategies, right? So politically, um, the the slaughter was banned in the U.S. And so that doesn't mean horses aren't getting slaughtered. They're just, they're going to Mexico or Canada, but that route is more difficult. And so all of a sudden we had a whole bunch of horses through that time period. So watching those horses have problems and have similar sets of problems over and over led me to just compile everything in a way that is very readable. Um, so the book takes the average reader, like I want you to be able to pick up that book and read it. If like my one client in New Mexico had a horse wander into their front yard 
never had a horse before, never touched a horse. They ended up keeping the horse and they did a great job because they looked for resources for help, right? So I want that person to be able to pick up the book and read it, but I want somebody that's been in veterinary medicine a long time um, to also be able to pick it up and learn something from it. So it's, it's kind of that very broad spectrum. Um, the first mm, two thirds of the book is all of the medical care and it just takes you step by step through everything like chapter one is how people get into an economic trap and how these horses end up losing their homes um and what you know quarantine and paperwork and proof of sale and and those things um and it takes medically all the way through i have a chapter on euthanasia because i think that's a really important topic to talk about before we're in the moment of stress um and then the second part of the book is training because you can get a horse that's a body condition score two and not halter trained, but you certainly can't round pin that horse or natural horsemanship that horse because it doesn't have, that horse doesn't have the muscular ability to do those types of training. So we have to approach these a little bit differently. And what do you do when it's a body condition score two, not halter trained, and it's got the strangles? Right. You, you know, like right. how do we treat that horse? Those challenges are huge. Um, so, so anyway, the goal of the book is to sort of talk about all of these physical things, but also keep in mind all of these mental things for the horses. Like, how do we quarantine a horse? How do we keep a horse companionship when we're in quarantine? How do we, you know, how do we help our help our clients, um, you know, pay attention to the mental well-being of the horse and and understand that we need to we we need to do some training right now. We can't wait another day. So. Sounds familiar, Becky, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It's similar to a lot of the reasons we end up with horses on the ASPCA side, and when we end up going in into rescuing. And one thing you said is that stands out specifically is sort of that aging client, or uh, um, a, a spouse passes away, and then it's very overwhelming. And I mean, I think we see that with small animals, we see it with large animal, but the effect, um, and the just. The, the lifespan in general, obviously, of the right, horses is right. so much longer. Um, and so how I, I know you said you're kind of in mixed practice, right? And I know we, when we when I think about large animal and I think about my large animal veterinarians, um, I feel like sometimes they get they feel like they're preaching to the choir, really, right? Because they don't have access to the people who maybe need to hear it the the most how do you sort of overcome that and get the message out um outside of the tiny circle of yeah. large animal veterinarians that's a really um that's a really good question so i i just it's really nice as a veterinary community for everybody to work together um i i've been toying with the idea here i have a couple of clients that work in human mental health and um and a good friend of mine and I, it's like we all need to be talking about like we have this big broader conversation about one health um through veterinary medicine and human medicine sort of together but i think we need to include the mental health in that um mental health of people as well as mental health of our patients the the well-being and especially you're absolutely right horses that live for 35 years right. you know like you bring that horse into the world i, I mean I, i'm 40 44 and my, I have two mules that are two years old. And when they were born, I was like, man, when these guys are 30, I'm going to be in my seventies. Yeah. Right. Like, this is it. 
I'm not breeding any more animals because these guys could very well outlive me. And so we need to really like having that 30 year, like what happens to your life in 30 years is really hard to predict, you know, when you get into horses. So, you know, you get a dog and you get 10, 15, but a horse is twice as long. So I, I don't I, there's no, there's no one size fits all answer to any of this, but I think the more we talk about it, the more ideas come to the table and the more tools that we have in our toolbox, just like knowing how to do, you know, knowing how to draw blood on a dog from three different veins is a good thing because you never know, you you need more tools in your toolbox to have clinical skills. But I think if we talk about mental health and well-being of both our clients and our animal and our patients, our animal patients, um, the more we talk about that, the more tools and resources will come to light and the better off we'll be. Everyone will be in the long run. You know, in, in, it makes me think as well, sort of along the lines of what you were saying, when we lose a member of our family, it's a little bit easier to take on their schnauzer, right? Like, okay, um, I could add a, a small dog or another dog or, or a little bit easier to place than maybe an entire horse. Um, but you were talking about the mental health aspect, and I was thinking about all of those, like, you've got heart and gut-wrenching pictures that we see of dogs that, you know, lay on their owner's graveside and like, you know, um, no, like lay in the driveway and wait for their owner to come home for 15 years and all of those really sweet things. And then I was correlating it because I recently read an article about the electromagnetic fields of the heart itself and what that's sort of why you know like hugs chest to chest where you talk like our heart to heart are are literally healing and they have an electric exchange and that there's some um reason to believe that because a horse has such a large heart that they would have a larger electromagnetic field which is sort of part of what brings that calm of being around them right because you are literally magnetized to them because of their big heart and you are working with the mental health and emotional aspect of these animals as well um and because they are such sentient beings and they live so long how does that differ from small animal how do you approach that? Like if, if we have large animal vets listening today who are like, I didn't, I, how do I even begin to go about addressing mental health and mental wellness of my patients? Well, I do. Many equine practitioners are already having these conversations, like how we house horses. Um, you know, many horses that are in a high, highly populated or a dense, densely populated area where land is very expensive and these horses are going to shows and doing things, these horses live in stalls, right? And so I think even in just the time period that I've come into the horse world, which, you know, 25 years or whatever, um, more people are looking at how do we do more turnout? How do we have these horses? How do we allow horses to have some social um, connections to each other? You know, we take down some of the solid walls between the stalls. So they have an option to touch each other and they can, you know, they can be together and be in these social groups. Um, So I do think that most veterinary practitioners are, are aware of trying to make things better for our horses. I think one thing that's really different about horses versus small animals is like small animals come into your clinic and they're basically screaming with their body language. Like they tell you everything and they're in our homes, like they're on our bed and on our couch and we're really familiar with them. And so our 
ability, either as practitioners or our owners' ability to read their animals is is better overall. Um, whereas with horses, they have facial expressions and horses can actually recognize more facial expressions from humans than dogs or primates, other primates can, which is interesting. Um, but But I think we're not very good at watching their expressions. So, so horses can come in and they appear calm on the outside, but they have an emotional shutdown state that they're in and you can listen to their heart and their heart rate is 80 because they're really anxious and scared. Like they just walked into the clinic and if you give it a few minutes and then they kind of relax, you can listen again and you're like, okay, well, this heart rate's back down to 40. This is normal. Right. Um, but that, that like interior versus exterior of emotional state um, or what the horses are conveying can be really hard. And even when horses, like I have eight, um, six horses and two mules and they come up to me at the fence and they, they give me the stare down, right? Like they're looking at me, <laughs> but I did not realize until I taught one of those horses to smile on command. So she lifts her upper lip and shows me all her teeth and she's super cute. Um, and she uses that behavior to solicit interaction from me. And until I had, and I, she's 14 this year, I think, until she started doing that and I watched how often she solicits interaction because that's a much more obvious cue. I didn't realize how often my horses are really, they're giving the, me the stare down, but what they're doing is soliciting interaction. And it's just not obvious because they're standing, they're looking at you and that's it. Um, but what they're really doing is they're asking for that interaction. So reading our reading our equines is I think more difficult and they're not in our houses. So we're just like, we're not as good at it. Yeah. And I guarantee you that all of our small animal listeners are just going, wow, this is so cool. But I do want to pivot a little bit away from actually our patients at this point and talk about our own challenges. And so, you know, for, for the past two decades and certainly for the past five years of our podcast, we have really focused on the mental health challenges that veterinarians are facing. Now, Sadly, Stacy, most of the time we're talking about small animal vets. Talk to us a little bit about some of the unique challenges of being a large animal, mixed animal, equine practitioner, and, and how is mental health actually being addressed amongst your colleagues? You know, I mean, are you guys feeling the same pressures from clients? You know, do you guys have the hate raids that we're seeing in small animal? Yeah, you know, what, what does it feel like to be an equine vet during this time? Well, I have to say, I think, I think for me, my client population is, is mixed. Like I have some clients that I adore and love and I'm so appreciative of them. Um, but I definitely have had a few people that they have other stressors in their lives and man, I am on the receipt. I've been on the receiving end of that. Um, so, and, and I think for me, um, if I can remember that they have other stressors in their lives, it helps me be a little more forgiving. I'm not the most forgiving person to begin with, but um, that helps me. Um, I do think that there is a big component with ambulatory work where we're going to people's homes that we are seeing things that do not come into the small animal day practices, right? Or even the small animal ERs. Like if I pull up into somebody's place in the vet truck and I am supposed to be treating one horse that might be losing weight. Um, and it might have, I might only be seeing that horse because the neighbors reported it because it's outside and the neighbors can see it versus the dogs and cats that are in your home that the neighbors don't see. Right. right? And I realized there's 37 horses on five acres here. Like, Ooh, we better, 
we better pay attention here and see what we can do to help this situation, not just help this one horse that we're seeing today. But then when we leave, we have to carry all that with right, us. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. there's a bigger job there because for ourselves, for our clients, because we're so like ambulatory people are so much more embedded in people's homes. We know where they live and we know how they live. And it gives us a better picture of like just a overall broader picture, but then we're taking in all of those emotions and then we have to process those too. Right. So how do you discharge that? Like, how do you remain healthy? Because that's a really important element that you just, just brought up because you're right. We don't get a glimpse into the homes. We don't see how people live. We don't see that the lady with the sick cat has 17 others that are just as sick at home, right? So we have the burden of the one cat in front of us, not the 17, whereas you see all 37 sick horses. How do you process and get through your day knowing that? I mean, I personally, for I think everybody's different personally, um, but for me, I take a day off and go riding in the mountains where there's no other people. Okay. Like, so I have my downtime, but that's, that's the thing is that I think no matter what, what aspect of practice you're in, taking that downtime and doing the things that are important to us is just a super critical place to discharge and download. And we just have to be able to do it, which is exceptionally hard during COVID because you know, there, there, there's more people and they all got animals that, during COVID. I mean, I've done more pre-purchase exams in the last two years in, in this practice than, than I've done in the last 10 years total. So it's not just the small animals that are being, right. you know, more, more acquisitions. It's, it's horses too. And so being able to say like, I'm off today and I'm putting my phone in airplane mode. I'm really sorry, but there are five other veterinarians in my practice that can help you out. And it doesn't have to be me today. And Stacy, I, I agree with you. We That is a great strategy, but I'm telling you right now, people are throwing their phones at the windshield as they're driving because they're going, no way, that, no way. <laughs> I can't do that. I mean, <laughs> Becky, that. back me up on that. So, so how do you make this work? Like, how do you balance it? Because that is actually the best strategy to take time for self-care and wellness. But how do you take the day off and switch the phone to AirPlay? That's an excellent question. I'm not sure I have an answer for everybody. <laughs> I, this is where I bring up therapy. Um, as you know, I love to. And, and I just had this conversation in at New York Vet when I was doing my lecture is, you know, how do you call in without feeling guilty? And I'm like, that's on you. That's not on your team. Like, if that's something you can't do, if your clinic or your staff is um, overwhelmed because one person is out, that is on management, that is on them. And it takes personal growth and practice. But, uh, you know, it's it's feel guilty for a few minutes or feel resentful forever and, and maybe okay. worse. So yeah. um, to me, if if this is a an issue for you it's a you problem if you're throwing your phone it's a you problem <laughs> pick um, up your phone everybody you know, Keep right. listening. Pick up your phone Keep listening. and get get a therapist <laughs> to help you work through that because we all have it but it's on us not our clinics go right at, go ahead y'all that's my soapbox <laughs> no you're right so, and that's what i'm trying to get at is the fact that somehow stacy has developed mechanisms that allow her to take that time off when she needs it because Otherwise, as you say, Becky, she's going to have a lifetime of resentment, which means she's going to burn out, which means she's not going to be there for those 37 horses that need her in the future. I mean, so here's the thing about what you're saying, Becky, is that 
when I, like I have called in sick on two days in the last year or two. Um, but when somebody, and I feel bad, like, oh my gosh, we got to reschedule things. Like, this is terrible. Like I am on my deathbed if I'm calling in sick. Um, but, but when one of my colleagues has to call in sick, I don't feel resentment towards them. Like, oh my gosh, please take care of yourself and get better. So like, being able to like switch that around so that we can give ourselves the same grace we give other people, man, that's hard. But, but at the same time, like, I mean, to be really honest, like I have time to have this conversation. We just talked about it yesterday and I'm like, yeah, I can do that this morning. Part of it is I don't have kids and I don't know how people with kids are doing it. Like it's a big thing. It's fun. It's great. (laughs) Well, it's sure it is, but my colleagues and my, um, my technicians and staff that when they their their kids are I know all of their children because they're all and they've all been into the office a lot right. in the last year you know what I mean yeah. and I gotta go pick up Caden from school I'll be right back and then you know stay and work that extra two hours and and kiddos here in the office you know I've had they're folding the surgery packs for us of course <laughs> you know like, and then they're going home and doing their homework our kids thought the the dog runs were were play pens right so i mean yeah we, we get that whole thing but you know it's really important viewfinders just to understand that you know number one all of us regardless of what our practice domain is we're all stressed out we're all dealing with challenges the second thing is you've got to figure out a way to take care of yourself because as you're hearing this is an equine surgeon who is dealing with a lot of really tough tough stories with horses. I mean, that's her specialty. These horses in transition that are unwanted. I mean, she's, wow, I can't only imagine, you know, how tough it is. But she has figured out a way to say, look, you know what, whenever I'm overwhelmed emotionally, I take a step back, I turn it all off, and I refresh and renourish myself. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, Becky. Yeah, and I think that's 100%. You know, what we've been saying is you've got to fill your cup and give yourself the grace that you give your team. But what I also understand, you know, is it sounds like to me is it sort of when you have a maintenance level day to day, you're less likely to need that huge right, mental health right. recoup at the end. And so, you know, it sounds like, you know, if you're sick, you're super sick. And and if you need that mental health, you can kind of set yourself up for it, right? Because it doesn't come as this huge wave. Um I think that the resiliency there is the important part. It sounds like you have a lot of resiliency and, um, you know, we, we try to get our listeners to kind of work through that for themselves as well. But I think what you're doing is incredibly important. Um, and I love that you're talking about this on the large animal side, but I think there's a lot that carries over in the small animal aspect and just that self-care um, and just kind of looking at our patients from a whole status, like you said, this kind of one health whole being. Um, what is kind of next for you in the last few minutes here? Because I mean, now you have a book out, you know, a book tour, a follow-up, a sequel, <laughs> Hallmark movie. What are you doing next? The book came out like, June of 2020. So COVID is like peaking. So there's no book tour. (laughs) Hey, Um, try debuting a book in January 2020. That went over uh, really well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so my, my thing right now, I really, I'm really interested in continuing to have these conversations um, about how to take care of each other better and each other colleagues, each other coworkers each other just humans that we're interacting with like how do we how do we manage that and and the more we talk about it i think the better the more tool again the more tools we have 
Um, and then I'm super interested in continuing to talk about fear free because the fear free aspect of it, for me, it was a game changer. Like I said, I was in that mixed animal practice in New Mexico for a brief period of time. That practice was not fear free, like, like the other end of the spectrum. And then coming to this practice, hearing the different rhetoric from the clients, seeing the different um, attitudes from the technicians, um, and, and just having that day-to-day -day interaction with my patients better, like being able to see that night and day difference. To me, I think when we talk about low stress handling and fear-free and the way we interact with our patients, it can have a really big impact on our, our mental health as well. Um, and, and our whole teams, just the whole aspect of how, how things are going in our day-to-day. -day. And so then you don't get drained as much because, you know, you're doing things that are nicer, I guess is the way to put it, but not the perfect way to put it. But when you're doing those things, then you're not drained as much and you don't need, like you're talking about those big recharges. You go home and you need a little recharge. So wow. that that's my next thing is the fear-free stuff. Like I am really interested in talking about that more. Wow. Well, I think you have certainly given us a bit of a recharge today. Dr. Stacey Boswell, her book is The Ultimate Guide for Horses in Need. And I love it because it says from unwanted to wanted. I love that. The care, training and rehabilitation for rescues, adoptions and horses in transition. We'll send the links down below in our show notes, but you can visit her at stacyboswell.com. That's S-T-A-C-I-E, Stacy Boswell, B-O-S-W-E-L-L.com to find out all about her goings on in the world. So again, Stacey, thank you so much for taking time out uh, on a chilly Montana morning. Thank you. You guys have a wonderful week. <laughs> Thanks. Guys, what do you think about horses in transition? How are you dealing with your own mental health challenges? And did you learn something today from you know our, our equine practitioner here? This was an amazing conversation for us. We're really happy to have these types of discussions with you guys. That's right. You can hit us up on Facebook and Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder and on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder. Yeah, and definitely let us know if you have a horse in transition or if you've ever seen one and how you dealt with it. Uh, interesting conversation. Great, great colleagues. And number one, I just really want to thank uh, people like Stacey Boswell for doing the things that need to be done. Until next week, guys, stay safe and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye.